I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket at dr-gen.com. Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg is a mother of three and a 20-plus year pediatrician, board certified, who has called all of her amazing advice and made a series of five-minute videos on everything from feeding and sleeping to safety and all types of parenting issues, which basically every parent out there can use, especially in the middle of the night when you can't reach your pediatrician. So this is like a must do. And she's offering a discount to everyone with code PIP20. PIP20 20 is the code to get 20% off of all of her modules. So definitely go to dr-gen.com and check it out. It's also on a link in my website too, zibbyowens.com. I'm so excited to be interviewing Sandra Miller today. Sandra A. Miller is the author of the memoir Trove, A Woman's Search for Truth and Buried Treasure, which by the way, I just loved. She has contributed to more than 100 publications, including the Boston Globe magazine, for which she is a regular correspondent. One of her essays was turned into a short film called Wait, directed by Trudy Styler and starring Carrie Washington. She also wrote award-winning scripts for 11 Central Ave, a radio comic strip that ran for three years in major public radio markets. She has appeared on the Today Show and other media outlets. She currently teaches English at the University of Massachusetts and lives outside Boston with her husband and two children. Welcome, Sandra. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. I loved your book, Trove. I really did, and I'm not just saying that. It was so good and hit just so many of the right notes in such a good way. You're such a good writer, and I literally, I posted this on Instagram, but I finished reading it. I had read most of it, but I had the last couple pages left, like maybe the last 30 pages that I finished on the elliptical, and I was bawling on the machine. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's not usually a good thing when I make people cry, but in this case, I think it was. No, it was good. Okay. It was good crying. Well, I love crying. I mean, okay. I, I especially, like, I love feeling emotion based on books and whatever else. So I thought it was great, so thank you. Anyway, could you tell listeners, please, what Trove is, is about? Sure. So in 2011, my friend David emailed me, and he said he knew of this treasure chest filled with $10,000 in gold coins buried in New York City, and did I want to go with him to dig it up? So it was kind of a tough time in my life. My mom, whom I was quite disconnected from, was very ill. My children were hitting tweenhood, so they were outgrowing the need for constant mothering, leaving me sort of a gaping hole in my life. And I was taking out a lot of the stress around my mom and my husband. So it wasn't really the... Is that not what we're supposed to do? (laughs) Isn't that what... No, I'm kidding. So, well, it wasn't... It probably wasn't working well for us at that time. So it wasn't the ideal time to go look for treasure in New York City with a guy who wasn't my husband. But I needed to go anyway. It felt like more than a treasure hunt game. And just to clarify, this treasure hunt that we were on, it's an armchair treasure hunt. And it's when a person or a company buries a prize and then sets up a complex series of online clues to reveal the location. So when you think you know where that prize is buried, you have to go dig it up. So I knew that it wasn't the perfect time to do this, but I did need to do this because it felt like my quest. It felt like something bigger than just a game, and I decided to go. So I set off with David from Boston to New York City, and we started looking for this treasure chest. And in the process of searching for that treasure chest, 
I discovered that I was actually on a much deeper search for something more than a chest filled with $10,000 in coins. And that really set me on my search, both for something I'd been longing for my whole life since I was a little girl, something I'd been searching for since I grew up in this factory town in Connecticut, always filled with yearning for something I couldn't even name. And so the story is really about my two quests, the physical search for gold coins and the internal search for something deeper that I'd been looking for my whole life, maybe wholeness. Oh, so, so great. You wrote really beautifully, in addition to other things, about parenting and about your kids. And you don't sugarcoat it. You talk about how your son, Finney, was cursing all the time after you tried this like parenting experiment where you asked him, like, curse as much as you can, and then it didn't like get out of his system as you had hoped. You talked about how missing... You had to miss one party for your daughter's soccer and your daughter's soccer match and accompanying party to go to New York on this treasure hunt. And how... Even though you were there for like 87,000 other things, it became a big deal that you missed the one thing for one thing that you wanted to do for yourself. Can you just talk a little more about sort of the expectations of put on mothers and like how you managed to like slither your way out to get a little slice of, you know, hacking into the ground to find a treasure with like a axe or what's it called? A shovel. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So I think women particularly mothers, are always sacrificing for others. And they're always adjusting to what their children need, what their family needs. And they don't always prioritize their own needs. And this was a case in which I decided to prioritize my own needs. And it's... And live to tell. (laughs) (laughs) And live to tell. One mom meets her own needs. Well, that's the... She's at 11. (laughs) That's the thing, right? We think we're going to blow up our family if we take this time for ourselves to to go look for something that we really need to feel complete or to feel... To pursue something that will will satisfy us and our lives. And so... When we put our own needs ahead of our families, sometimes really great things happen. And in this case, a really great thing happened. It was hard at first. And my family didn't always understand what this quest was that I was on. But eventually they saw that that I was actually and looking for this treasure. They came to recognize that it was bringing me into a state of wholeness, into a state of happiness. I was going on my journey that was actually essential for my own happiness. So it actually served me well in the end. And I think it was a good model for my children too, because as I went through this process of searching for this treasure and then searching for something much deeper and the writing came into this process, I was writing as I was searching. And they saw that I really, really valued the process. They saw that I really wanted to create this book They saw that I wanted to see it through to completion and publication, and they watched me do it. That was my journey, and they they came to cheer me along in the journey. So nice. Yeah, it was wonderful. And the quote I wanted to read about this section, you said, I once read that people who look for treasure might be trying to replace the emotional fulfillment they didn't get when they were young. As I bustled my own children out the door to their soccer games, I had to wonder what, if anything, they weren't getting. I tried to give them everything, my time, my attention, my assurance, my love, because I didn't want them to reach middle age and say, where the hell was mom when we were growing up? For 12 years, I'd been the mother I'd always wanted, prioritizing my children's needs and in the process, burying my own. 
I just had to throw that quote out there because that's so great. So you also wrote beautifully about grief in this book. Mm -hmm. And in the scene where you find out your father has passed away, you wrote, if I learned anything from those first moments, it's that nothing prepares you for the day you lose your parent. No book, no independent film about grief, no late night conversation over a past bowl of weed or bottle of brandy. You can't possibly know that experience of having your father taken from you until it happens. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've already like quoted that line to three people, by the way. <laughs> that was like, so, tell me tell me about, just talk to me about this passage. This sure, moment. that was a day that just burned into me with such hard, searing pain that when I went to write it in the book, it was the easiest scene to write in some ways because of the recall. The recall was right there. It was such a, such a visceral experience, but it was the most painful to write for obvious reasons because I had to, I had to, it was re-traumatizing to write that scene and get that scene right. But I think what happened that day is I felt my world tilt. What you don't understand when, before you lose a parent is, they root you to the earth, right? They're the reason you're here. They're, their DNA, their biology. That's why you exist. And suddenly when they're gone, there's this feeling of uprootedness. And I felt really adrift at that time, particularly that day. I went around in a fog. I had to drive three hours home from my college to my home that day. And I remember losing whole chunks of time on the highway that I, I thought, oh, did I go by that? Did I take that road already? So <laughs> I clearly was having some kind of out-of-body experience. And then one of the complicated things about that was I didn't have a close relationship with my dad. And so we grief is not simple. You know, grief... Grief doesn't just equal loss in a way or pain in a way that that in the most obvious way. For those of us who have complicated relationships with our parents who then pass, that makes grief very, very hard to navigate. And that's what I found happened in that situation. I wasn't grieving the father that I was close to and loved. I was grieving all of the experiences we would never had. I had just turned 20 and I thought, I never have a chance now to really know him in this life and for us to really be close and love each other. If I have children, he'll never know my children. If I get married, he'll never see me get married. So it was a very, very complicated experience to to grieve my father in that way. And truthfully, it's been 35 years. And while I've healed, as I explain in the book and show in the book, there's still this time around Thanksgiving, I call it that day, where I just feel this little, oh, in my gut. And I remember this is when he was dying, and this is when I lost him. And so the grieving process is so, you know, it's so personal. And to each person, depending on their experience, you know, depending on their relationship with that person. But it was also an important part of my journey, that grief experience. And I write about that in the book. And you feel, I feel like you try to find him in different ways through your going to Japan and his diary and mm-hmm. all of it. It was like trying to dig into his past too as part of your search, like the treasure of, you know, finding yeah, out more that, about him and, you know. That I feel like there was so much, I felt like you had some theories about his childhood that you were like poking at, that you were trying to test out with your mom perhaps and never really had resolution on too. Yeah, yeah. My dad was born in 1920. He was one of seven children, six boys growing up in a German farm family. So you can imagine. <laughs> he went He went to World War II at, at 24. And we only now understand the trauma that men experienced or 
people yeah. experience in war. So I'm sure he suffered some deep, deep traumas that he could never communicate to us. So I have long since forgiven him for, yeah. you know, not being able to love me the way I needed to be loved. And again, it's, it's this part of my journey that that the parenting that I had, while it was challenging and I could, you know, I would even say dysfunctional, it was the only parenting I could have had to live this life that I'm living. And I'm grateful for it. A love story with your husband, though. That was pretty great. I <laughs> yes. won't even go into it, but that was yeah. awesome. That Spoiler was nice, alert. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not spoiling anything. I'm just, you know. Okay. So in one scene, when you're searching for treasure in Brooklyn, you say where, and you reflect as a child, it was where the parents are supposed to love me. Later, it warped into where is my life's path, the great adventure, the feeling of wholeness, where, where, where. So right now for you, where is what? What are you looking for now? Where is... Finish that sentence. Wow. Well, where is the time to do all the things that I want to do right now? You start to notice that in your 50s, maybe earlier, where I try to be present in my life, but I also feel that clock ticking sometime. And I think, where's the time to see all the shows I want to see, spend time with my friends, see my children, cook delicious meals. Read. Time to myself. <laughs> read. Read. Yes, right? We're so distracted. There isn't the same time for reading. But at the same time, I, the second part of my answer would be, I don't ask where anymore in the same way. I feel like the answer to where has become here, far more so than I would have said even a year ago. And I think I can credit this book journey for a lot of that fulfillment that I feel now. I had to go through that. I had to, I had to go through that quest, that treasure hunt on many different levels. And I had to write about it. And I had to be able to hold my book in my hand. And not everybody needs sort of a concrete physical experience to fulfill them in their lives, but I think I did. And at first I felt a little bit ashamed of that. Like, could I, can I really feel this satisfaction until I see this through to fruition? And the answer might have been no, but I feel, I feel like I'm much more present now. I'm really, truly, deeply satisfied with the outcome of this journey. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so tell where, like, where did you like to write? Where, take, give me a little picture of where you wrote most of this book and then how it became an actual published book. Okay, sure. So I wrote this book wherever I could because, as I said, there's something re-traumatizing about writing memoir. Yeah. And so it's it can be quite painful. And what a gift that I have the time in my life to write and that my life is set up with flexible work, a space to write. I'm not always scrambling after different jobs. So so it was a wonderful gift to be able to write this book. And it was a very, very hard book to write. So I found I would write in my home office. I would write in the basement free from distractions and chocolate. I would write at the cafe because I could get away from said distractions, right? So I would write between classes at work. I teach at a college, and I would just steal any moments where the muse struck, and I would just go at it. And then I would end up, oftentimes, if I had written a hard scene, I'd end up on my home office floor. I wasn't usually crying on the floor of Starbucks, but that might have happened once or twice. <laughs> but I'd end up on my home office floor 
crying. And I'd call my sister. She lives in Germany. And I'd say, this is hard. Does this happen? You know, I sort of needed her verifying things that I was writing about that felt so traumatic to me. And she would say, yeah, yeah, that happened. That sounds about right. And she'd let me cry. And then I'd hang up. In the middle of that, my sister went through ovarian cancer. I read that in an essay you wrote that was so sad. So, and she's fine now. Mm -hmm. She's great. So I went back and forth to Germany three times that year, and I wrote on the plane. So I don't have a set place that I have to write, but I have to write. So wherever I am, I will write. (laughs) Is there anything that you teach your students that you feel like has helped you the most in the writing process? Well, I say this pretty much every class, that if you want to be a writer You have to be present and you have to shut off the distractions because we live in pretty turbulent times right now and we are so distracted all the time. So I'm constantly telling them they're not going to become writers by looking at Instagram. They're not going to become writers by looking at Facebook. They're going to become writers by writing, right? And by sitting down in that chair and quieting the distractions and putting fingers to keyboard, pen to paper, and actually writing. So that's one of the things that I tell them is is find time, really create a space where you can write and without those distractions. And tell them a million other things. I don't know if they hear me, though. I like to think they do. I I do, too. Some of them do. Yeah, yeah. You wrote this really great Boston Globe essay, which I just thought I hadn't read anything similar, so I just wanted to flag it. It's called I'll Miss My Son, and his friends when he goes to college. And it was all about how accustomed you had gotten to his whole group of friends. It wasn't just him. And you said, yes, I will miss my son something fierce, but I've been anticipating our arrival at this bittersweet junction for 18 years. The surprise right now is realizing just how much I will miss my son's friends, those lovable boys that Finney met in middle school and has been hanging out with often at our house for seven years. Mm-hmm. And it was so sweet. So how has it been with them all, with them gone? Wow, it's funny. You know, the first few weeks, my husband and I would come home at the end of the day. It'd be dinner time, and he'd grab a bag of shredded cheese, and I'd grab a bag of almonds, and we'd sit on the couch, and we'd talk about how much we missed the kids, and then we'd switch, you know, (laughs) cheese and almonds. So that went on for a couple weeks, and I calculated once that I I probably prepared over 21 years about— 22,000 meals. So I oh felt like gosh. I felt like I was allowed a few weeks off. So so I took that then and now we're eating a little more sensibly and we've gotten into a rhythm. So it was hard at first. It was a big it was a big adjustment. I had this birth this birth this I had this book that I was giving birth to, mm-hmm. right? Just as the children were leaving and my pub date was September 19th. So they were out of the wow. house and 2 weeks later I was bringing this this third But that's perfect. Baby. It was perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I recommendation to empty nesters, right? <laughs> yeah. Make sure you have a pub date two weeks after your kids leave. Get started maybe five years before. Yeah, even seven years. Yeah, before. seven. Yeah, seven maybe seven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. While they're in middle school is okay. a good time to start that. Yeah. So, and you know, it's funny because for the same reasons that I miss them, it's also fantastic to have the space because we have this big, loud, messy, cacophonous, connected household, and there are always children, other kids coming in and staying for dinner. It's wonderful. I love that. There are always cooking projects. There's always a mess. And with them gone, 
whew, there's there's a little bit of space around me that I that I needed at this time. And I'm really enjoying that space. And my husband and I are getting to know each other again. How's that? That's great. Good. We watched the great <laughs> British baking show. I don't think I would have discovered that with the kids around. So no, it's it's actually really wonderful. I think we're a little worried. Is there gonna be this echo chamber in empty nesterhood? But we actually have time to sit, be together, notice that we really love each other. And then we we always take plenty of time to miss the kids. So <laughs> uh-huh. there, there's still a lot of that going on. You had an essay become a short film. Mm. What was that all about? Wow, that was crazy. That was a really tricky time in my life. I guess there have been a couple of tricky times, but it was about 14 years ago. And I'd had some hard rejections in the writing world. And I thought, do I continue on this path? And I actually prayed for guidance, as I often do, and had a little talk with the universe. I need a sign if I'm going to go on doing this. Honestly, a week later, I get a call from Glamour Magazine that I've won this contest. My essay has been selected. It's going to be made into a short film starring Carrie Washington, directed by Trudy Styler, Sting's wife. And I fell on my knees on the kitchen floor with this belief and gratitude. It was just amazing. It was unreal. So they made this beautiful little film called Wait, and I got to go to New York for this big red carpet premiere and walk down the runway carpet with Carrie Washington and Sting, and it was really a surreal experience. I was on the Today Show, and so yanked from my suburban life into this, you know, world of Hollywood glamour. Fabulous. And it's just four days that we still remember so fondly. But it's really funny about that time. It showed me something, too, that I I needed to see. At the end of those four days, we had this red carpet premiere. And at the end of the evening, my husband and I took our car home. We had James as our driver. And we said, take us to a Chinese restaurant. We got Chinese takeout. And we took it up to our fancy hotel overlooking the East River. And we put on plush white robes. And we sat on the bed eating Chinese food and just laughing. (laughs) And that was really actually the highlight, just having that experience together and saying, wow, this just happened. And just sort of connecting beyond all the glitz and the glamour. So that's awesome. It's fun. So now that this book is done, right? You've checked off the milestone. It's come full circle. Now what? Do you still want to write another book? Is this like the be-all, end-all? What do you foresee in the future? I think it's just the beginning, actually. So I've been talking to a lot of people about this book, doing a book tour, and people are really interested, particularly women, in this idea of a quest Mm -hmm. or a treasure hunt. And a lot of people don't know where to begin. And so I started a book called Dig Here, Finding Truth and Treasure in Your Life. So working working title. So it instructs people on how to begin how to begin that journey, how to be a little selfish, how to take time for themselves. For exactly the reasons we were talking about before, that women don't always know how to do this or forget that they can or don't never learned that they can. And so I'm working on that. I'm really enjoying the promotion around Trove. I've wanted this for a long time. And 
it's here now. So I'm just savoring every minute of it. And yeah, I always, I also like the satisfaction of writing essays Mm -hmm. and short pieces and articles. I like feature writing. I like digging into lives, other people's lives. So I feel like, yes, I'm just getting started. Right? What a great feeling. It's a great feeling. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I keep saying that's awesome. That's not awesome. That's amazing. How about that? (laughs) I think it's awesome too. I think, I'm sorry. It's nice I hear myself. So you already kind of touched on this, but any other advice to aspiring authors? I know you've talked to what you said to your students, but maybe somebody even on the publication side of things or just getting through some of the, like the time you mentioned that you were really doubting yourself. How do you, aside from getting a huge movie deal or whatever, how do you keep yourself going? How do, how do you, can encourage people to stay with it? Well, I think there are a couple parts to that. And the first is believe. You have to have faith in what you're doing and in your project. Because if you don't, if you go to your desk every day and say, all right, now I'm going to work on my crappy little memoir that nobody's going to buy, you know, here goes another useless day, which plenty of people do, I think, right? They're very jaded because we're in a fiercely competitive time right now. And there's a lot of good writing out there. There's There are a lot of people submitting work. There are a lot of people <laughs> writing books and memoirs. So mediocre isn't going to cut it. And so you have to believe in that project. And I feel like if you have a project that you can actually get behind, that you can feel <laughs> body, heart, and soul, that's your project. Work on that project. Don't give up on that project. So I go, <laughs> I go down to my basement room every day. I do I do a lot of energy work, and I spend a lot of time in the spiritual world. I love the physical world. I love all the wonderful gifts in this lifetime, but I also am really fascinated by the things that we can't see. So I'm interested in psychics. I'm interested in spirituality. I'm interested in in belief systems. I meditate a lot. And every morning I go downstairs into my spiritual space, and I do 15 minutes of meditation at least, and then I put on some upbeat song, and I act out exactly what I want to have happen in my day. So I have put on Fantasy by Earth, Wind, and Fire, and I have signed books for imaginary people. I have given talks to auditoriums filled with hundreds of people in my basement room, in my fantasy world. So I believe you bring that experience into your life. You pull it out of your imagination and you bring it into your body and You see it, you feel it, you believe it, and you can make it happen. Nothing's going to stop you from making that happen. So that's one thing that I do. Then I go upstairs, and I work really hard. And it's not enough to believe in your project. It's not enough to imagine it. It's not enough to play Earth, Wind, and Fire and want it to come to be. You actually have to do the work. So that combination of belief and hard work, this is a money-back guarantee, honestly, that 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 will get you where you want to be. It will not always happen the way you want it to happen. It won't always happen on your time schedule because I actually wanted this to happen four years ago. And it didn't happen four years ago, but it happened at the exact right time. It happened when I had space in the empty nesterhood. It happened after my daughter was launched at college. And so so thank you, universe. (laughs) Good, you know, you knew better than I did. So that's what I would say to anybody who's, who's, despairing or feels uncertain, don't wobble. Don't wobble. Keep the faith and do the work and watch. Magic. Oh, that was 
Awesome. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for you. coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for this amazing book that is really, really inspiring and beautiful and well-written and just... It's really fantastic. So thank you for Thank you. It. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket by Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg, dr-gen.com. Enter code PIP20, PIP20, for 20% off of these can't-miss modules that will make your parenting life so much easier. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm-hmm.